Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today for this month's deep dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. Now, I'm not going to lie to you guys. Today's episode is going to be unlike the vast majority of the content we produce. That is, it isn't going to be particularly high yield, nor will it likely help you impress your attendings during your shift. But it's one of my personal favorite topics, and I think it's going to be really fun to go through. Part of being an ER doctor is being able to handle any complaint at any time, even the once-in-a-career type of cases. So, today's episode is going to be on toxic plant ingestions. We are going to talk about plants containing cardiac glycosides, anticholinergic alkaloids, and various types of poisonous mushrooms. Before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits Insurance. If you are a regular listener of our podcast, then you know how important own occupation disability insurance is. Stephanie Pearson and her team at Pearson Rabbits have the experience and knowledge of working exclusively with healthcare professionals to obtain this own occupation disability insurance. Zach and I would not endorse a company that we did not personally believe in on our podcast. Stephanie Pearson is the real deal. Please check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and sign up for a consultation appointment today with Stephanie Pearson or one of her team members. Now, back to the episode. Just a reminder, like everything else on our podcast, this is not medical advice. Furthermore, I am not a toxicologist. If you have ingested one of these plants, please call 911 or your local emergency hotline immediately. And if you are treating a patient suspected of ingestion of one of these plants, you should consult your local toxicologist or poison control center immediately. With that out of the way, let's start off by talking about cardiac glycoside-containing plants. Cardiac glycosides are molecules that act to inhibit the sodium-potassium ATPase on the membrane of cardiac myocytes. The drug digoxin is derived from plants containing cardiac glycosides. The action of these molecules result in multiple clinical effects on the cardiovascular system, including negative chronotropy and positive inotropy, or in plain English, heart goes slower and heart pumps harder. A few different species of plants contain cardiac glycosides. The most well-known is called foxglove, which is this plant with white or pink flowers shaped like bells that grows pretty much ubiquitously in the northeast and the west coast of the United States. Other cardiac glycoside-containing plants include lily of the valley, oleander, and something called squill. Now, these are the common names. I don't even think I could pronounce the exact species of these plants. Interestingly enough, there's even a venomous species of toad called the cane toad that contains cardiac glycosides. People presenting to the ED after ingestion of a plant containing cardiac glycosides may have nonspecific symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache. One unique symptom that is classically described is the visual changes that can occur with these ingestions. Specifically, patients tend to describe a yellow-green discoloration of one's field of vision. And of course, just as we saw in last month's episode, these patients can present with bradycardia. Now, there are many abnormalities that can be seen on EKG. Basically, every type of heart block is possible. There is one arrhythmia that is classically associated with cardiac glycoside toxicity. 
You will see this on exams. This is something called bidirectional ventricular tachycardia, and the name describes it pretty well. It's a wide, complex tachycardia where the QRS complex alternates beat to beat between having a positive amplitude and a negative amplitude. That is, the axis of the QRS complex flips 180 from beat to beat. Cardiac glycoside poisoning, directly due to its mechanism of action, can cause severe hyperkalemia, which is a very poor prognostic factor. The management of hyperkalemia in this circumstance is a little different than usual. Here, you treat by treating the underlying cause, which would be via GI decontamination with activated charcoal, again, if indicated, if the ingestion was very recent, as well as with a drug called Digibind or Digifab. This drug is an animal-derived antibody that binds to the cardiac glycosides like digoxin. It has two important side effects to look out for that you need to know. It can actually cause hypokalemia by reversing the action of the cardiac glycosides, so it is important to follow the patient's potassium levels. And secondly, as it is animal-derived, it has a risk of causing anaphylaxis in a small subset of patients, so be sure to keep an eye out for that as well. One other thing I want to mention regarding the hyperkalemia seen in these ingestions. There is something bad called stone heart syndrome that theoretically can occur if you use calcium to treat the hyperkalemia. Based on all the reading I've done, the evidence for this is extremely poor. Most of the studies were done in dogs, and the few studies that were done in humans were very, very poor. In severe circumstances, I probably wouldn't withhold the calcium. Just know that this is out there and this is something to consider when you have a patient presenting with this type of ingestion. Next, let's talk about anticholinergic poisoning. There are a ton of plants out there that contain these alkaloids, mainly from the Datura species. Some of the more well-known ones are commonly known as Jimson Weed, Deadly Nightshade, and Angel's Trumpet. The alkaloids in these plants act similarly to medications that we all know, such as atropine and hyoscyamine. They are often intentionally ingested by adolescents as they can induce hallucinations and other euphoric properties. However, they come with a lot of nasty side effects. Does anyone remember the Mad Hatter memory tool for anticholinergic toxidrums from medical school? If you don't, it goes something like this. Mad as a hatter, blind as a bat, dry as a bone, hot as a hair, red as a beet, full as a flask. Now let's break that down. Mad as a hatter, meaning it causes delirium, hallucinations, and altered mental status. This is usually the effect that people who take this recreationally are going for. Blind as a bat, as it causes significant pupillary dilation. Dry as a bone, so importantly, anticholinergics cause anhydrosis, most notably under the armpits. Hot as a hair. Due to the lack of evaporative cooling from the anhydrosis, anticholinergics can cause hyperthermia. Red as a beet, it can cause skin flushing. Full as a flask, as it causes urinary retention. In addition to these symptoms, patient can present with tachycardia and an overall picture similar to agitated delirium. Now, this constellation of symptoms is really similar to sympathomimetic toxicity. The main clinical distinguishing factor between these two toxidrums is sweating or lack thereof. Anticholinergic toxidrum presents with anhydrosis, while sympathomimetic toxidrum can present with hyperhidrosis.
This clinical feature is so important that there is actually a physical exam maneuver used to test for this. It is sometimes called the toxicologist's handshake. You simply stick your hand, preferably gloved, but I'll leave that one up to you, into the patient's axilla to test for the presence of axillary sweat. It should be present. If there is no axillary sweat, that is indicative of the presence of anticholinergics. Now let's discuss what to do when this patient shows up in your ER. Generically, I would do the same workup that I would do for any ingestion, mainly to rule out co-ingestions. That would include an AccuCheck, an EKG with continuous telemetry monitoring, basic labs, a CK level, salicylate and acetaminophen levels, possibly a UDS, and pregnancy testing if appropriate, and always a call to poison control. Every single case that I have seen personally with anticholinergic toxidrum, I have just observed until clinical resolution of symptoms. However, sometimes in severe cases, you need to intervene, and there is a medication you can use to intervene. It is called physostigmine. I have never used this medication personally, but it was used a lot in the 70s and 80s. If using physostigmine, the name of the game is low and slow. Very low doses administered very slowly. The reason for this is if you are wrong, you can cause a cholinergic crisis similar to organophosphate toxicity. If you do, you can reverse this using atropine. Next, let's talk about toxic mushroom ingestion. There are a few different clinically significant types of poisonous mushrooms. It is important clinically to determine if the patient's symptoms are early in onset, meaning within six hours of ingestion, or late in onset, meaning anywhere between six and 24 hours after ingestion, as this helps you guide the expected clinical course of the patient and helps you determine exactly what the patient took. Let's start with early onset toxicity, again meaning symptoms within six hours of ingestion. The bad news is that there are lots of different types of toxidrums in this category that you can see with poisonous mushrooms. The good news is these are usually not fatal and these are usually benign. The most common type of symptoms that you will see are rapid onset GI symptoms, that is nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. There are hundreds of species of mushrooms that will cause these symptoms, and the clinical course usually is self-limited and treated with supportive care. I will briefly go through a few of the other possible early onset toxidrums, as there are many, and we really don't have time on this deep dive to go through all of these. The inocybe species can cause a cholinergic toxidrum, and the treatment here would be with atropine. It is extraordinarily rare for these poisonings to progress to the severity that you can see with organophosphate poisoning. The thing to look out for with cholinergic crisis are what are known as the killer bees, that is bradycardia, bronchorrhea, and bronchospasm. And I'm just going to throw this pearl out there because this is on every single exam. If you are treating a patient who is in cholinergic crisis with atropine, the end point of your atropine is when the secretions from the bronchorrhea stop. Sometimes you're going to have to use 50, 70, 100 vials of atropine to get to this point. I've seen case reports of ridiculous amounts of atropine being used, often sourcing the atropine from multiple hospitals in the area just to treat a single patient. And again, that is with the inocybe species. Another species to be aware of is the Amanita muscaria mushroom. 
And this is the mushroom that we all picture when we think of Alice in Wonderland. It's a large, brightly colored, usually red or orange, cap, and the cap has white spots on top. This mushroom causes symptoms similar to what you would expect. Hallucinogenic symptoms, delirium, myoclonus, etc. The mechanism of action is through glutaminergic and gabaminergic toxicity, and thus these patients can also present with seizures. The treatment here, again, is supportive care with benzos as needed. Okay, now let's discuss the mushrooms that cause late-onset toxicity. These are the ones that should make your sphincters pucker. The main one that I want to talk about is Amanita phylloides, also known as the death cap. This is the one responsible for most mushroom deaths in the U.S. due to its potent amatoxin that inhibits protein synthesis in organs and tissues throughout the body. Patients present after these ingestions in truly an evil way, and you will see what I mean by this. They usually start with delayed onset GI symptoms, the nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, except these start occurring within 6 to 24 hours of ingestion. Again, that is why clinical history and time to onset is so important here. After that, these patients usually improve, sometimes to 100% and they feel normal. There is this period of transient improvement that lasts for 24 to 36 hours after the initial GI symptoms. Physicians who are not aware of the time course of these poisonings can discharge a patient during this time and then have the patient decompensate at home and die. After the period of transient improvement, the patient crashes. The patient usually suffers rapid onset liver and multi-system organ failure, followed by a painful prolonged death. Death is usually due to hepatic failure. And treatment is often futile, but most recommend using N-acetylcysteine to help reduce hepatotoxicity. Now, interestingly enough, there have been some studies using another compound called silibinin. Silibinin? I don't know how to pronounce it. But these studies have shown actually improved mortality. And I believe there is an ongoing clinical trial in the U.S. to study this with some more rigor. The other delayed toxicity that I wish to discuss is with the Gyrometra species. Gyrometra is a type of mushroom that actually really looks like real brain parenchyma. And this helps you remember the symptoms it causes. Seizures. It actually leads to an acute vitamin B6 deficiency, which then precipitates seizures, similar to an isoniazid overdose. And as you could guess, the treatment, just like for an isoniazid overdose, would be with pyridoxine, aka vitamin B6, and of course, usual seizure management as necessary. And that is all I have for you today. I warned you guys, while a lot of this content can be fair game on exams, it is extremely rare clinically. I just wanted to thank you guys for hanging in there with me while I scratched that nerdy itch of mine to talk about toxic plant ingestions. As always, feel free to send me an email, mike at emclerkship.com. And until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.